Welcome to the Morning Scroll. I'm Rabbi Dina Cowens from Mishkan, Chicago, and this week we have a very special bonus show, our third ever mailbox episode. In today's show, we're celebrating the completion of the book of Leviticus, known in Hebrew as Vayikra, by taking some listener questions. I'm so grateful to those of you who wrote in, and I'm stoked to hear what this book left you wondering, pondering, feeling confused by, etc. As a brief reminder, Leviticus is the third book in the Torah, and it takes us through a lot of laws. There's a little bit of narrative peppered here and there, but mostly this book is all about how to do the things that God wants us to do and the way God wants us to do them. So I'm excited to dive into the questions we have about what that means. What is this God and why would they care what we do? There's a lot to dig into, so let's dive right in. Our first question comes from Katherine Tynan. Let's take a listen. Hi, Rabbi. I'm hoping you could shed some light on the name of the book, Vayikra. Why does it start with Vav? And it seems a little weird to start the name of a book seemingly in the middle of a sentence or a thought. Thanks. So this is a really astute question, Catherine, because you're noticing the way that just one letter can change the way we think about an entire book of the Torah. I think the most basic answer is that yes, actually the book of Vayikra and the very beginning of the book of Vayikra is a continuation. The last thing that happened in our narrative in the Torah is that in the end of the book of Shemot, Moses finished constructing the Mishkan and God's presence entered it. And the book of Shemot ends with a couple verses sort of recapping that the Mishkan accompanies the people of Israel throughout the rest of their journey, but really the last narrative moment is God entering the Mishkan, God's presence visibly entering. And so while there is a real tone shift in the book of Vayikra, narratively it makes sense because God enters and then God calls out to Moses and is like, all right, Moses, come here, time for us to start doing the work. So there is this moment of Vayikra shifting gears, but also being a continuation of what happened before. And it is sort of a grammatical construction. It's meant to divide us from what came before, narratively, by marking that this is a new chapter. So originally the book of Vayikra probably didn't exist in this format in the Torah. I think I mentioned in one of the earlier episodes that the book of Vayikra seems to have been sort of knitted together from a bunch of different scrolls that would exist in the temple complex that different priests who are trying to remember the laws of how to do a sacrifice for this thing or that thing would go look in the like basket full of law books and pull one out and be like, oh, the Torah, the Torah rules for sacrificing in the case of sin. And then, no, that's not the one I want. I need the one when someone gives birth to a baby. And that later those books got included in the Torah. They get kind of artificially stuck right in the middle of the Torah. But we have to remember that the Torah was not originally composed as like a five-chapter book. It's our way of wanting to organize the Torah neatly into books and parshas and chapters so that we can break it down and make sense of it and read it in a reasonable schedule. The Torah itself doesn't really work that way. The Torah is not written as a narrative from start to stop. There's actually a principle in biblical interpretation in Hebrew, it's ein char b'torah. There's no such thing as before or after in the Torah, meaning when we come across things in the Torah that feel out of order in a narrative way or when they don't totally make sense, like this story doesn't line up in the way that I expect stories to in my sort of Western modern conception of a beginning, middle, and end, that principle comes to remind us that 
that's okay because the Torah wasn't meant to read as a beginning, middle, and end. So the fact that the book of Vayikra feels like we're starting in the middle of a sentence or a thought is both narratively true and a reminder that we can take pieces in or out, right? If the whole Torah isn't one continuous bridge, that means that we can shuffle things around. We can mess with our understanding of one part, and it doesn't mean that the whole house has to come tumbling in, right? If the Torah was one continuous narrative, if everything built on the thing that came before it and established a foundation for what comes after it, then it would be very hard for us to look at specific sections of the Torah and say, we don't buy into that anymore, or I have a problem with that and I want to change it. The whole rabbinic project would crumble if the Torah needed to go one thing after another. We created this sense of artificial starting in the book of Vayikra, but in the way that the Torah is constructed, that's not really part of the original construction. I hope that answers your question. It's a really interesting way to think about what's happening here. How is this different and how is this actually the same as everything we've gotten before? So thank you. Next up, we have a question from Joe Henderstein. Let's hear what Joe has to say. Hi, Rabbi Dina. My question is around the laws of animal sacrifices. I'm wondering if we can draw any connection with the prevalence of animal sacrifices and the current movement away from meat-based diets. And then I guess more generally, what place does Judaism have uh, in the current climate movement? Thanks. Actually, Joe, I think the answer to your question, both questions, is yes. The prevalence of animal sacrifice in the Torah can teach us something about the way that we think about eating animals now and can be related to this move towards a more plant-based diet. Now, 2021 or 21st century, eating meat is not a sacrifice for most people. It's a norm. Our diets are based around meat consumption. There's a whole Meatless Monday movement to recognize that most of us, many of us, are used to eating meat seven days a week, sometimes multiple times a day. But back in the time of the Torah, and actually for most of human history, we weren't eating all that much meat. It was a big deal to get to eat meat. So animal sacrifice in the time of the Torah was like a currency sacrifice. It was like burning money, basically. Animals were very expensive to raise, Many of them were valuable agriculturally, especially things like ox and buffalo and goats, cows. These are things that have agricultural value. They help you farm your land. And if you are a subsistence farmer, that's a big deal. And animals are more nutritionally dense than most of the foods that come from the the plant world. So if you're a subsistence farmer and you are not eating tons of processed food and sugar and things like that, Eating animals was a very effective way to get calories and protein and minerals. A couple years ago, I was living in Nepal, and I had the opportunity to see a festival in which there was a lot of animal sacrifice happening. It really changed the way that I think about this because it helped me know the connection between animals and livelihood, right? All over Nepal, people are still subsistence farming and they rely on their animals to get that work done. And so sacrificing an animal is like sacrificing your opportunity to live if you have one buffalo or one ox or one cow, which is all most people have. 
and you kill that one thing, you are not in good position to make it through the year. So animal sacrifice was a real sacrifice. It was something you had to plan for for a long time. It was a dedication of significant resources. The move away from eating animals in the modern day is a way of recognizing that animals have more value than just their nutritional value, and that when we don't treat animals as valuable living beings, it has a negative impact on the planet. So while all the laws of animal sacrifice in Vaikra can seem really bloody to us, like all they do is kill animals, Actually, I think they should be read as moments that were out of the norm, right? That they were about the economic, physical impact of the sacrifice. Again, going back to those times when I saw animal sacrifices in Nepal, it's a lot more complicated than the Torah describes. It takes a lot of people dedicating a lot of strength and presence and attention. Animals do not go gently into that quiet night or whatever the quote is. It takes a lot of people coordinating with each other to take down a cow or a bull. So the ritual of animal sacrifice is not just killing an animal and eating it or killing an animal and burning it. It's about the whole experience of the ritual, going to a special place at a special time, interacting with special people, etc. And the Torah describes that many of these sacrifices, at least part of them, was eaten as a communal meal, sometimes shared with the priests, sometimes shared with your household. So the animal sacrifice was this like big deal barbecue. It was like having a 4th of July barbecue. It's not something you do every day. It actually was special, which can teach us something about our own meat consumption. How can we treat it as something special, ritual, and not, what are we doing for dinner tonight? I guess it's burgers. In terms of the question on the broader climate movement, For sure, yes, Judaism has a big role to play. In the very beginning of the book of Genesis, in the second chapter, God says to Adam and Eve, your role here is in this earth is to be le'ovda u'lishomra, to tend and guard it. When it comes to eating animals, Judaism takes that idea really seriously. So Adam and Eve were actually originally vegetarians in the Garden of Eden. Eating meat came after their expulsion. And it seems for much of the rest of the Torah, eating meat is a communal thing. It's something you do together. The laws of kashrut that we get in the book of Vayikra around eating animals make it clear that it's not something we would do offhand. We don't use planetary resources offhand in Judaism. We do them with intention. We do them in community. We do them for special occasions. So I think it's worth thinking about how the book of Vayikra can teach us through these rituals that seem so archaic, none of us is going to sacrifice a goat in our lifetime, I assume. How can that teach us more about the way that we live with intentionality in the world around us, which I think is at the root of the climate movement to say, how can I actually think more deeply, more intentionally, more authentically about the way that I interact with the world around me with its resources and protect them as much as I use them? Thanks so much for that question. Hi, Rabbi Dina. My question comes from Shmini specifically about the laws of kashrut and them being meant to help humans be more holy. I grew up in a somewhat kosher household, but we didn't keep kosher outside the house. As I aged, I got further and further from it, but I still think about the laws of kashrut whenever I take down an entire pepperoni pizza. I guess my question is, holy in the eyes of whom? Is it holiness for the sake of being holy? What even is holiness? Wow, Josh. What even is holiness anyway might be the defining question of the book of Vayikra. I'm actually going to answer your question in reverse order. The middle of the book of Vayikra, really its climax, its sort of high point, is a section known as the holiness code, where God gives a series of laws that really range the gamut from the way that we interact with other people, the way that we live our lives, that we structure our time, etc., 
And the reason it's called the holiness code is because after most or all of these laws, God says, be holy because I am holy. Kedoshim tihiyu. Which begs the question, what does that mean? What even is holiness anyway? When God says, be holy because I am holy, what exactly are we supposed to be doing? Like, how are we supposed to be like God in our interactions, in our actions, in the way we think about ourselves in the world? So the word holy, the root kadesh, kuf dalad shin, at its most basic, at its most ancient, seems to be about separateness, about setting something as separate, setting something aside, maybe even consecrating something. So setting it aside for a specific purpose, which shows up in all sorts of different ways in the Torah, right? So when we say on Shabbat in the Kiddush, same root, that God made Shabbat, sanctified Shabbat and made it holy, What we're talking about is God set this one day aside from the other six. God said, I want you to have days in sets of seven, and I want one of them to be different from the other six. So Shabbat is holy because it is set aside. We do it differently than the way we do the rest of our days. So when it comes to a lot of the laws in the books of in the book of Vayikra, what they're about is setting one thing aside from another thing, differentiating different pieces of our life, different moments in our life which is, I think, actually what defines being a human as opposed to being any other kind of creature. So my dog knows when it's dinner time, right? And about 15 minutes before dinner time, she starts to get really whiny and she's like, feed me. But she doesn't set aside dinner time in her day. When I put the food in her bowl, she doesn't take a moment to be like, thank you, human. She doesn't do anything special with her food. It's just like the food hits the bowl and she's all in on it. And she scarfs it up as quickly as she can. And then she's like, could there be more today, please? As humans, we have the ability to set something aside. We have the ability to make something special, to mark time and space and objects as different one from the other. And I think that that's true for all of the laws in Vayikra. They're about recognizing distinctions, recognizing that relationships have ruptures. And so when we cause a rupture or we've experienced a rupture or something about our relationship to the world changes because we welcomed a new baby to our family or something, we want to set aside time as a before and an after. And we mark that ritual transition with a sacrifice. So to your question about keeping kosher and the laws of kashrut being about helping humans be more holy, I think it's about setting aside food as special, treating our food not just as something that sustains us, but as something that actually marks time in our day and marks our relationship with the land, with the world around us. So I touched on this a little bit in Joe's question before this about the ways that Judaism and eating animals intersect. And that eating animal sacrifices was a special, rare occasion. It wasn't like people were eating meat all that regularly. And so eating a sacrifice was special. It marked that moment as ritually significant, as different from all the other days, because you were eating something you wouldn't normally eat. And I think that's true in general, that Judaism wants us to look at our food and have a relationship with it. So when we say a blessing over bread, which the rabbis instituted really as the blessing over anything we would call a meal, the blessing is hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, which literally means the one who brings out bread from the earth. But of course, we all know that bread doesn't pop fully formed from the earth. It takes a lot of human labor to get to that point. It takes the tilling of the soil and the farming and the harvesting and the grinding and the baking and this, that, and the other. 
So when we say hamotzi lecha min ha'aretz, what we're doing is calling ourselves to all of the different steps that it took to get this bread from a seed to something that's going to fill our bellies. And the laws of kashrut are about marking divisions in time and stuff such that we pay attention. Right, so holy in the eyes of who, I actually, I think that I want to reframe that question as about the way that we experience the world. It's not about checking off a box for God necessarily, though I think some people experience kashrut in that way. I think that the way that the Torah lays it out is like, can you be human in the way that you eat? Differentiate yourself from all the other creatures and all the other peoples who dig into food without thinking about it first who whatever they find, they eat. If I ever drop something on the floor while I'm cooking, my dog snarfs it up. She doesn't care what it is. But as a human, I'm picky. I don't like celery and I don't like cilantro. I won't eat foods with celery or cilantro in them. That is something that is unique to being a human, to differentiate between my food. And Judaism levels that up and says, not only are you able to be picky based on your tastes, I want you to be picky as a reminder of your Jewishness. So while you might be hard-pressed to find a traditional Jew who would condone your eating a pepperoni pizza, I actually think that the way you describe it, the way that you have intentionality and feelings associated with your food, is very Jewish. It's doing the kashrut thing, which is saying, I am a human and I can set aside one thing from another. I can live with purpose. I can live with consciousness. I'm not an animal who just scarfs the first thing I see. That is, I think, the essence of kashrut and the essence of being holy in the way that we eat by forcing us to recognize, to stop, to be grateful for when we eat food, to be grateful for the nourishment of our body and the joy it brings us, and more than anything else, to think about the ways that it connects us to other people, especially now in a pandemic when we're all sitting alone eating or we're just starting to return to restaurants. The Jewish practices around kashrut, which are really about creating community, right? I am a person who eats the way that you eat, I think are really the essence of what's happening here. It's saying, do more than nourish your body. Judaism might be like the anti-soylent religion, right? Do more than nourish your body. Do it as a ritual. Do it as a spiritual practice. Hope that answers your question. You've been listening to an extra special mailbox episode of The Morning Scroll with me, Rabbi Dina Cowens. If you've enjoyed this week's bonus episode, let me know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and hitting that subscribe button. Every week we release three-minute episodes meant to help you incorporate learning and spiritual practice into your busy routine. So why not share the show with a friend or family member who's looking for some bite-sized Torah? We really appreciate you tuning in and helping spread the word. Thanks for tuning in and congrats, you've finished another book of the Torah. Next episode, we're back to the book of Bamidbar. Can't wait. See you there.